This podcast delivered by Australia Post. Whatever you're sending, they make it easy to pay and print your shipping labels from anywhere. And if you're in a metro area, they can come and pick up your parcels with My Post Business. Find out more and go to ozpost.com.au slash podcast. Australia Post. They put everything behind your business. Now, time for the show. Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan and I'm here with David Scott. Great to be here as always. And uh, joining us this week, our guest is one of Australia's most eminent economists, uh, Warren Hogan. Now, Warren was chief economist at the ANZ Group for six years. Uh, he left the bank earlier this year. And Warren, it is great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Um, you know, I read somewhere um, that you did client presentations in almost 60 cities during your tenure. So... Uh, a uh, bit of a change of pace for you now, and how are you finding, uh, uh, how's life treating you um, after, uh, after life in the Big Four? It's been fantastic the last, uh, the last few months. Uh, I think I've been on a plane twice in the last six months. That's the, the lowest travelling I've done since uh, probably the last century. Um, and I'm playing a lot of golf and uh, enjoying some time with my family, but at the same time I'm paying attention to the world economy and markets because it is fascinating out there. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. So, yep, haven't taken my eye off, uh, off the economy, unfortunately. Um, uh, that's uh, keeping me uh, very interested. There certainly are uh, interesting times, which I believe is actually a Chinese curse rather than a blessing. Um, so um, on the show uh, this week, we're going to try and look forward. Um, over the last few episodes, we've been looking back at some of the big events and the big sort of ruptures that there have been uh, in global markets. But we're going to try and um, have a look forward um, on the outlook, um, particularly for Australia. Uh, we have a government, which is the good news, as uh, Malcolm Turnbull has scraped back into power. Um, he positioned himself as a prime minister who was intent on delivering a, a strong uh, economy. Um, the makeup of parliament is absolutely going to be a challenge uh, in his uh, capacity to, to do that. But we're going to, um, we're going to cover the um, domestic outlook and what, what's next for Australia. Uh, we're going to have a look at the inflation picture. Uh, we've got uh, CPI coming out at the end of this month. Absolutely crucial in terms of what the RBA decides in early August. Um, and uh, we'll look at one of the interesting sort of um, uh, things that has happened on markets is that, you know, um, U.S. equities are at all-time highs, uh, while bonds um, are at uh, record lows, record lows, and we'll um, talk a bit about what's going on there. And uh, towards the end, we might talk a little bit about our, um, our travel plans for the, for the six months ahead. To Australia. Now, we all probably remember um, a few years ago um, all the talk about the passing of the peak in the mining investment uh, boom. And we've seen how that's uh, played out uh, in the transition, pretty, which has happened pretty smoothly, you have to say, passing of the baton um, to the non-mining parts of the economy, um, surges in growth in, in New South Wales and, and Victoria. Um, however, we're arguably now witnessing um, what looks to be the peak of the construction boom that followed that. So, Warren, how do you see this playing out in the months ahead? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that um, the residential construction side and the broader housing cycle has been uh, the main driver of the economy in the last few years. And, and that was the playbook. It was mining investment peels off, it frees up resources, rates drop, the currency drops, and that stimulates um, the domestic economy. Um, the other point which people often forget is that through that mining investment boom that really went for almost a decade, um, 
we didn't build enough houses. The, the, all the resources in the economy at the margin were going into mining investment and we underbuilt. Um, we, we got to a point three or four years ago where we had a, quite a severe undersupply of housing, particularly in um, the large eastern seaboard cities, particularly Sydney, actually, was the worst case. So, you know, this housing construction boom um, is really the last vestiges of that major China stimulus that um, was most obvious in the mining boom. Um, so you could argue that really the sort of the, the big impact of the emergence of China um, from a resources point of view and a demand for metal point of view um, is, is still positively impacting the Australian economy. And the, the evidence as we sit here today, mid-2016, is that um, that housing construction cycle is looking long in the tooth. You know, there's no doubt that the reports of oversupply of apartments or the potential for oversupply in the next few years is uh, are widespread. You know, they're not just you know, a few economists doing their macro measures, they're real estate agents and developers. And then, of course, you know, there's a whole range of new elements to this housing cycle, the biggest one being the, the, the rise of the apartment development, which is essentially, from a funding point of view, commercial property. Um, it's not just your, your, your individual going out and borrowing from a bank and so forth. So all the evidence is, is that, that that cycle's sort of peaking. Um, there's no evidence that it's going to crash, but it is going to, at the very least, stop providing growth to the economy. And, of course... The other element to the housing cycle is house prices. And there has been a surge in debt in the household sector. There's been a surge in house prices. Now, this has been extraordinarily positive. We can't underestimate uh, how positive an impact that's had on everything from resale sales to the renovation market to, you know, just look at Harvey Norman's share price, you know, the, the furniture and fittings and all this sort of stuff has benefited from that house price cycle. And that also is looking um, toppy. You know, it's you know, there's a lot of talk of a bubble. There has been in Australia for a while. So I think uh, the last retail sales uh, report from the ABS, um, we've seen household goods, the household goods category that's shown very steady, strong growth um, uh, on a year-on-year basis for a long time, but it actually fell yeah. um, last month. And it's underpinned retail really for the last last couple of years. Yeah, it was uh, very interesting with that with that uh, retail sales report. Uh, yeah, as you said, uh, for years and years, it was flying around about sort of you know, eight, nine, ten percent sometimes. Uh, the household goods retailing, just the last few months, and you know, the three monthly uh, you know, annualised rates actually quite negative now uh, in that particular component, which is just something about the, what's going on with the uh, the residential property market. You no, know, is there a slowdown now starting to impact? Uh, is the number of sales that are going through anywhere near as high as what they were in the past? It's just one of those anomalies to go and keep an eye on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that the first thing is, is is not so much that the whole thing is going into reverse and there's a bubble that's bursting or a construction cycle that's sort of gone too far. It's just that it won't contribute to the amount of growth it has been. You, you're just not going to get the, the job creation, the marginal amount of spending. I think those retail sales figures bear that out. Now, the, the risk, of course, is something does happen. You know, that there's a, there's a cut in the supply of credit, that there's a shift in sentiment, that there's suddenly... You know, the, the employment, you know, we saw into the, the employment figures this week that employment growth is okay, but it's not great. And, and if suddenly the, the dynamic in the market starts to reverse and we do get a significant downturn in prices, which triggers a real caution on the supply of credit, which then causes the developers to pull back, you could have a problem. Either way, whether it's a problem in the next couple of years or it's just a lack of growth for a number of years, the question for the Australian economy for the next three to five years is what's next? 
you know, this, this, going back to my initial proposition, it's that the China boom is really now over. You know, it was the mining investment boom and now it's the housing um, construction boom. So this interacts now with the politics and it's uh, really a sort of critical time for Australia. You know, it's a time where we can talk about innovation and new industries and supporting small business and we can talk about the rise of the Chinese middle class as a, as a potential market and the rise of Asia more generally. That's fine, but it's got to be able to actually happen and it's got to be, in a, you've got to create an environment that makes it easy for small business to get capital, to set up, to employ people, to, you've got to get this, the labour force right. I mean, this, all this stuff around technology is that it's, 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 it's the you know, great white hope. Well, technology is, 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 is having huge impacts and has for a long time, but it's, it's, it's destroying as many jobs as it's creating. So this is where political leadership comes in, and this is where you could argue the fact that the coalition in Australia was returned with a small majority is a good thing, but the reality is we all know that on at about 7 o'clock on election night we all knew that actually this is a problem because that big majority they had has been whittled away um, we've got an obstruction of Senate and we've also seen hints of the issues in the UK and the US with the rise of inward-looking, protectionist, um, marginal parties. And that's the, I think that's the real risk in this country. And I suppose, you know, Turnbull's whole point about, you know, um, you know there's never been a more exciting time. I, I think absolutely what technology has enabled um, and what the globalization of a consumer market has enabled is that you can get companies going from very, very small to very, very large um, uh, in much shorter time frames. So you can do this job and value creation now um, with the technology, with the, the way that the connected world allows you to access markets that you just couldn't 10 years ago. Um, but the reality is those things are rare. Um, they're risky. Um, and when if, you, if you look at Atlassian, for example, you know, started on a $10,000 credit card, a couple of um, guys from, um, from Sydney, um, and now look at them, uh, giant, I think $6 billion um, uh, valuation, a very successful uh, IPO. And, um, you know, that's great, and it's inspirational. Um, but the reality is that... Uh, you you need a lot of those to. Um, they tend not to be very large companies in terms of employee uh, numbers, and you need a, you would need a lot of those. And um, you know the mathematics, um, the brutal arithmetic, of um, of the size of Australia at the moment, the amount of capital risk um, uh, risk hungry capital that there is here, uh, means that it's um it's uh, it's a, that's a very very tough ask. Yeah, and just it's a good example in the sense that you know these these new these companies that start out and are driven with the application of new technologies, I think you're right to say that it, it, there's, there's, there's going to be a need for a lot of those. But the other thing that people miss is that often those companies disrupt and they create job losses elsewhere. You know, and the, the whole rationale is you know, what is genuinely new and what is the utilisation of, of technology to do something we're doing already but doing it more effectively. And I think that's the, the point that um, uh, is missed. The, 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 the fact is, is that this waves of technology and innovation combined with globalisation, the best economics can offer you up is that it's going to free up labour supply. Now, whether or not that actually is labour supply that seamlessly goes into you know, a whole bunch of startups is, 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 is we know, it's far-fetched. The labour supply that's freed up has to, through hard graft and necessity, f find a way to 
generate income. And, and, and that's a tough environment. That is the environment we're in, and I think it's going to be the environment we're in for a long time. You know, it's not, we're, it's not something that's going to turn around. So it's going to be a, an environment where people are going to be trying new things. Small businesses are going to be starting up, whether they succeed or not. But I think that's, that's, that's why this environment globally is feeling pr- pretty difficult. Um, D- David, you had a chart earlier this week which just showed an extraordinary surge in um, dwellings under construction. It's just almost parabolic. Foreign buyers uh, accounted for almost a quarter, 24% of all sales nationally um, over the past three months. So there's clearly some strong underpinning um, demand. Um, but can you talk us through that and, and what you're seeing when you look at that market at the moment? Obviously, a lot of the, uh, the dwellings that have been... The 24% sounds alarming, but a lot of that's going into the new property, as we talked about earlier on as well. I know the high-rise construction, particularly uh, inner-city areas of Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne, that's where a lot of that's going into. But there's obviously a lot of demand for that. Uh, is there a reason for safety? You know, they're looking for something to go and move their money out of a particular country and... I am referring to China when I'm talking about that. You know, the security of you know, having an investment which can't be touched by a third party. Um, it's quite remarkable, you know, with all the, uh, the price gains that we've seen. The Aussie dollar's also picked up a little bit recently. There's been some restrictions placed on, uh, from the Australian lenders, at least, uh, on lending to, uh, to foreign investors, and there is absolutely no sign of a slowdown. Um, can that continue? Well, no, there's, it's had a lot thrown at it already at the moment. If the Australian dollar goes up a little bit, that may see it come off, but uh, at the moment it's going to be there for the time being. Just around where I live, uh, and I live sort of Waterloo in Sydney, uh, it's going to be the most densely populated area of Sydney soon, so uh, great for property prices. Um, but I noticed that uh, no, just the other day walking down Burke Street, there's three uh, places that were already sold but hadn't commenced construction, and all of a sudden in the last week they've all started. So it's uh, no, obviously they've gone and got their quotas enough to be sold and they're starting construction. So it's still going and that's going to be you know, the next six months, 12 months, 24 months, that's going to continue to feed into this system. So the parabolic growth that we've seen in, uh, in high-rise dwelling construction, it's just going to continue. Yeah, and it's, it's another channel through which the, 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 the sort of the rise of China is supercharging the, the housing market, so that there was always going to be this sort of, sort of lift in construction, you know, from that domestic pent-up demand. But then you've got this international demand. The problem with it, though, is that uh, you know, one, once a lot of this supply is delivered into the market, you know, it, it's got to be digested, and, and that's what could be disruptive. And I think it's going to be a fascinating year next year to see how that apartment market uh, how it plays out with uh, with that all the completions coming through. Yeah, particularly with the, uh, the settlements that are going to be coming through as well. A lot of places have been bought off the plan, obviously. They put a down, a down payment. Uh, once the supply hits the market, our price is going to be the same as what they bought. Were they going to be higher than what they were purchased for, or will they be lower? Uh, and, of course, if it's going to be lower, that's going to leave a lot of people out of pocket. So that's obviously a, a risk that's uh, going to be worthwhile watching. So we, we've got this heat in the and, and all of this job creation that's been going on in the uh, construction sector, in professional services, um, in the healthcare sector, ages, aged care, etc., um, that is going to play out over over the next little while. Um, we've had the jobs data this week from the ABS. You know, um, good numbers on full time job creation. You know, um, so there's still a lot to be positive about there. But overall, uh, Warren, would you say Australia is now starting to look like you know other countries, other advanced economies that we see around the world, um, where you know, and Glenn Stevens has talked about this that you know maybe we need to get used to the idea of maybe 2-ish percent uh, GDP growth. 
I, I, I agree with that view. Um, you know, when you when you lose a, a, a sort of a major driver of growth, such as you know a mining boom or the construct housing construction boom, um, the, the, the sort of the rest of the economy, if it takes over, is going to be a lot steadier, and it's and, and essentially growth will be delivered on the basis of population um, and productivity. And um, I think that you're going to see that deliver growth that looks more like two to three percent over the next few years, and for. Many Australians, that's going to seem lacklustre. The, the key question will be, is what does that do to unemployment? Now, you know, if that keeps unemployment steady at a level which at the moment is in the high fives, which is above full employment by most estimates, um, but if it's steady there, I, I don't think it's a, you know, it's, it's certainly not going to be a political disaster, but it, but it is unsatisfactory. If it was to result in unemployment going up, that's where the real political pressure would come. And this is where, you know, the productivity piece is so important. You know, we can talk about population and the drivers there. There's a very long sort of waves that drive that, but there's also immigration. But the productivity piece comes from two things. One is innovation and the other is economic reform. And then that gets back to the political piece. And, you know, this government's going to really try and push its budget through and, you know, some of these initial reforms around superannuation and so forth. That they're not terribly ambitious, though, at the same time. They're not structural reforms? or No. Well, that's the thing. And, and, and you know, the, 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 the problem, I suppose, is that the, the government's going to do very well to get its sort of existing agenda done without sort of looking to the, the long horizon of structural economic reform and how do we compete, um, whether that's, you know, the, the various arguments, whether that's through freeing up the labour market or through infrastructure or, or what have you. So... Um, the reality is, is that you know once this housing cycle sort of starts to, to soften, um, I think Australia is going to look very, very similar to many other Western countries. Maybe not Europe, maybe not Japan, maybe a bit more like the US. But that's where two percent growth is is the norm, uh, and not you know two percent growth for most of the last um, in real terms for most of the last sort of fifty years in Australia is regarded as weak. Um, and this is the new reality. We've already seen it in financial markets. The Reserve Bank's sort of ahead of the game here um, with the, the short-term interest rate here down at sort of well, sub-two at 1.75, long-term government bonds anyway at sort of two. Um, and, you know, that all speaks to an interest rate environment that's, that's it's going to remain here or lower. Um, and I think if there's any hiccups in the economy, we're going to see interest rates here head significantly lower. Um, at some stage in the next few years. Um, but it's this new world, and it poses great challenges for everyone. Um, the, the main challenge I think that's coming to the fore, particularly around this last budget, is, is for um, self-funded retirees um, because they're looking at very, very low um, interest rates, very low returns, and fundamentally questioning how they're going to fund their retirement. We've started to see some, some stories in the press about this, um, and there's, there's a real fear element to this, you know, is, is how, how, how do we live in a world that, you know, you can't go put your money in a bank deposit and get 5%, that you're going to be lucky to get sort of 2 or 3. Um, and how do you, you know, what sort of capital do you need if you're going to get 2 or 3% returns or what sort of risk are people going to take to try and get up to 5 or 6? All these sorts of issues. I think that's a fundamental one because the reality is, is that, um, you know, the proportion of the population that is over 60 is, is rising rapidly. It's going to be one of the biggest changes in, in not just Australia, but all around the world. And how those people um, are coping, how people are preparing for that stage of life, it's going to drive the politics. Uh, it's going to drive... Of course, as, as we get that surge in the 
the, that end of the, the, the demographic, the population py pyramid, they're also voters to oh, move totally. into that. Yeah. And we've seen, we've seen um, a very important... I mean, the politics is, is, is scary and fascinating. The Brexit, it was um, these, these older... Um, the, older, the older people in Britain were the ones who were wanting to, to leave. They're, they're, it's, it's, you tend to find older people more conservative, uh, less wanting to reform, less wanting to change. And if the key for Australia past the housing boom, looking out five years is to get reform, is to get change, to drive productivity, to drive living standards, well, the politics is not going to line, is not going to add up with that. Well, that's an analytical and maybe a pessimistic view, but it's playing out. I mean, before the election, people said Australia doesn't have the concerns around Brexit or Trump in the US. Well, I think the sort of the shift in the primary vote... The rise of sort of you know your Xenophon and protectionism, or your Hanson and inward-looking highlights of what we do, and we're doing it while the economy is quite good. Well, we talk about you know a one-off election, um, and we had a double dissolution, which changed the arithmetic for getting uh, elected to the Senate. Um, sure, take all those things I into into account, um, but it would still be uh, unwise not to look at this surge in vote for. Uh, the, the fall in vote, the historical fall in decline in voting for the major parties and the rise of uh, uh, independents and other minor parties posted their highest primary vote in history uh, and it would be unwise not to think about that in terms of what is happening um, overseas as well. Um, so, and it does, you know, um, it, it you know, creates great challenges for, um, you know, the established parties um, who you know, have particular visions and um, uh, for how you um, drive the, 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 the economy um, and uh, how you, you know, create jobs and, and, and provide a social welfare net for people. Look, just, just on that to finish it up, it's, you know, because it's, it's, it's really important, but, you know, the amount of uh, the contribution of globalisation for, for a very broad, simplistic term, i.e. trade and... and sharing of capital globally and all this sort of stuff, the impact on living standards has been phenomenal. To, to go, to, to just stop that process, well, I think, you know, you could argue we're going to struggle, but to reverse it, to put up pro trade barriers, is going... It, it, it's very hard to quantify with economic modelling. You can do it. You can then argue about the assumptions and all the models, and this is how technocrats and bureaucrats and politicians will get themselves caught in it twist about this over the next five to ten years. I hope it doesn't, but I've got a feeling it will. But I can tell you, as an economist who's been watching this and studying this all my life, it will knock living standards down. And the, the politics of it will then become a self-fulfilling cycle. It'll, yeah, the economy will get worse, people will get more inward, the economy will get worse, and, and that's what we've got to avoid. People were very happy, you know, many people, many analysts and commentators saw the response to the GFC not a protectionist response, as we saw in the 1930s, to this major economic downturn is a great sign. The, the problem is it looks like it's just been delayed with the way things are going with Trump, the rise of Trump and the, the, the rise of the disaffected in parts of Europe and, and, and some of the hints we're getting here in Australia. I hope I'm wrong, but people who deploy long-term capital are going to look at it, and that's why they're buying government bonds. People who invest, it worries them. You know, if you, you, you commit capital to a project that's got a 30-year life, you, you have to take these things into consideration. And this is adding to the, the, the very high levels of uncertainty. And, of course, 
it makes investment and, uh, and, and generating growth that much harder. Um, so one of the things, uh, w- one of the important uh, impacts of job creation, if you get it really strong, you get a falling unemployment rate and you get a little bit of tightness in the labor market, um, and as a result you might get some inflation, um, particularly on the wages side, um, start, you know, get some inflationary pressures building. Um, this is obviously um, super important to, um, to, um, for the direction of the, of the official cash rate. Um, obviously, uh, low inflation has been a, a characteristic of um, the global economy, um, and Australia has been importing um, uh, some of that for a number of years now. Um, but it's not just uh, the imported disinflationary uh, force that we're looking at. There are um, some um, domestic on the domestic side, particularly if you look again this month's job figures. Um, you know, not a huge amount of job creation, um, probably just enough to keep it kind of level um, the unemployment rate. Um, now, Warren, you wrote on Business Insider um, about the enormous pressure that foreign competition uh, is putting on, on Australian firms uh, in this age of cheap debt. Um, and then companies like, I'll just pick an example, but Aldi, um, you know, operating at vast scales globally um, when you set them against the likes of our West Farmers and, and Woolworths. Let's, um, let's recap that. How is that playing into the Australian uh, inflation outlook? So... There's been a lot of evidence in the last sort of decade that's really sort of mounted in the last half decade that in any given country, the role of international factors in determining inflation is increasing. There's been a lot of studies by international organisations and academics on this. And and, and in Australia, you you didn't seem to get a a lot of... Well, it it wasn't obvious in the data. Australia had essentially maintained an inflation pulse of somewhere between 2 and 2.5% since the crisis. And that was well above what we're seeing internationally, which was you know, probably something more like sort of 1 to 2 and, and often much lower than that if you're looking at Japan or parts of Europe. But this last little while we've really, in this last inflation figure we got, shocked everyone with how low it was. We got a low one in Q3 last year, then we got what looked like a you know, back to normal 0.5, 0.6 sort of number in Q4, and then we got this sort of 0.2 um, point three sort of number in uh, Q1, and the reality is is that you know thinking about it is that the, the retail landscape and this is just one force of course, but the retail landscape in Australia is in, is increasingly being dominated by global players with massive supply chains, and they are competing on a global basis. They're going into any given market and wanting to establish their position and utilise that supply chain to undercut their competition, um, and they're keeping prices down. Is a, is a reality, whether it's Audi or H&M or whoever it might be on whatever segment. And that's on top of, obviously, the, the access to a global marketplace through the internet, which has been around for some time. So the question becomes is um, th- this force is clearly at work, and, the, and a great way we can sort of determine this is that the, the traded goods sector of the economy, um, the prices should be going up because of the fall in the Aussie dollar. Obviously, the Aussie's been stable for the last little while, but if you go back three years, it's fallen a long way. It was over, well over parity for a while, and now it's down sort of 75 cents to the US on a trade-weighted basis. However you want to measure it, it's down sort of 20 to 25%, and that should show up in imported inflation according to sort of the long, long-standing models of around 3 or 4%. Well, imported inflation is half a percent, and you're seeing that from motor vehicles to you know, clothing, footwear, groceries. And this is just global players coming into our market. So the question then becomes, you know, um, what next? And this inflation number coming up 
is critical in determining that. So I think that, you know there's a huge focus from the markets about whether this will act as a trigger for a rate cut from the RBA. From the analysts, it's actually really important, and for the Reserve Bank, it's really important to understand you know, how far is this process going because, as I said before, inflation seemed to be comfortably in the last couple of years around two, and that last few figures has told us actually it's more like one and a half. This figure coming up, if it tells us, well, maybe that's one, then it's the idea of where is the disinflation going to stop. And what's really quite scary or what sort of bears considering is that this is happening again in an economy that's doing pretty well. What happens if the Australian economy does soften over the next few years? Where does inflation go then? Um, and it's not um, obviously um, all just uh, traded inflation, David. I think you, you noted recently it was, um, uh, was Paul Bloxham at, um, at HSBC um, looking at some of the, um, the the pricing caps that appear to be uh, at work in the domestic economy. Um, so um, he was talking about, you know, um, uh, the, the rebalancing of growth from mining to services is actually proving to be disinflationary because the jobs that you have out west and the FIFO workers and all that kind of stuff, you know, 20 year old kids on 130 grand driving trucks around um, and they're moving over to the eastern states now maybe where they're um, either driving trucks or working uh, in construction and they're just not earning as much. You know, there's also then, you know, um, education um, services and, um, and healthcare provision where just prices just don't seem to be um, picking up that much. And what's your take uh, on what we might see at the end of the month in the CPI? Another low figure is the uh, simple answer. Um, look, it's pretty binary. 0.4 or below, in my opinion, they go. They'll cut. That's, uh, that's my opinion. Um, if it's a 0.5, then it's going to be a little bit uh, you know, twitchy as to whether it actually might occur. And then the NAB, who's the only bank out there at the moment, I see is actually still forecasting that the rates will be left on hold to look like geniuses. But no, going back to the domestic side of things, it comes down to a lot of labour market slack is still very elevated in the country. Um, and as you said, a lot of jobs that were high paying mining sector have been replaced uh, by industries that aren't as high paying. Uh, so you put those uh, you know, two things together, you have the disinflationary pulse that's coming from, from offshore, you have increased competition, uh, just talking about what we'll, you know, some of the H&M and all those places. Uh, I got an Uber home last night, I've recently started using Uber, I uh, look at the price, it's about a 25% discount at least to what I'd go and use uh, knowing in the taxi industry, I know who I'm, I'm dealing with, they know who I am. It makes perfect sense, but that's part of the disinflationary pulse, and we talked about property earlier on as well. Uh, the rental market, there's a whole stack of rental properties coming on, courtesy of the, uh, the high-rise boom that's going on, uh, and that's also adding to the disinflationary pulse. So everything you know, domestically as well, which makes up 60% of the CPI basket, it's very weak as well. Weak wage growth, um, a lot of labour market slack, which is not contributing to any you know, wage pressures. It's pretty simple. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd take a, I'd, I'd draw the line in the sand a bit, bit lower. Um, you know, I, I think maybe if we get a point two, that could force an August cut. But the, the, the reality is, is that the economy is doing okay, and 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 uh, you know, even May, some people could argue was a bit of a bit of a surprise, but it was a response to the CPI. But the question is, was that it? And 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 really, that's the point I was making before: is that let's see what this number is to tell us where the underlying pulse is, and if it's a point four. It's probably confirming the pulse is one and a half, which is what we knew anyway, and what got the cut before. And and my view is that, and whether this is you know what the RBA is thinking or the RBA board thinking is is, is a completely different thing. My view is that you, you, your next sort of set of rate cuts comes when the economy slows. You know, you, you don't just respond to 
inflation. Um, you need to look at the real interest rate, what, what inflation is doing to that. But if you just keep cutting, even though the economy's okay because inflation's low, the money, the money you're pumping into the economy isn't going to necessarily blow off as higher prices at the retail level. It's going to blow off as, as in credit, in asset prices. And, and that's sort of what they don't want to do. So I, I think, you know, I think the RBA is going to be cautious. I, I personally don't think we're going to get a low enough number to get them over the line in August. But at the same time, I think the cash rate's going sub one. It's just whether it happens, you know, in six months' time or in 18 months' time. And I think the, the, the other thing we've got to realise about monetary policy, well, I think we've got to a point now where it's not actually clear that a rate cut um, is going to have that big benefit that it once did. And, and the reason is is that this, this, this issue of retirement incomes, and it's in such focus that when the, when the, when the, the RBA cuts... Um, the term deposit rates come down and it just reinforces this idea that you're not getting returns. It, it, it worries people who are, are a, either on fixed incomes now and, and dependent on term deposits or a chunk of their income is from that and that they have less money to play with or it actually creates what is even more powerful result and that is that people think, I have to save more in order to retire. Now, this is the whole argument about why negative interest rates are not working and why it's a bad policy. Um, I don't think you draw a line in the sand at zero. It's not whether it's negative or positive. It's just that you get to a point where interest rates are low, where the net benefit is, is marginal. If you're cutting rates to stimulate borrowing by people in the household sector in housing, you're actually trying to encourage what is already a major vulnerability in the economy and a major risk factor to get worse. So, look, I, I, I've been an interest rate bull my whole career and I've never been shy of calling for rate cuts. And actually, as I've said, I think they're going to half a percent. I just don't think they should be doing it now. But I've taken these views before and the RBA board has disagreed and they've gone ahead and done it. And given that there's, what, 23 of 24 economists who are paid to be economists um, uh, thinking they're going to cut, then, you know, look, we have to take it seriously. But I think the line in the sand on August is core inflation at 0.2. I think at 0.3 they might even convince themselves just to hold off. Yeah. Um, okay, so I just want to quickly turn to one, one of the things that we've seen um, uh, globally, um, the S&P 500, all-time highs um, uh, uh, that uh, happened during the week. And at the same time, um, as has been widely observed, um, uh, treasuries, uh, U.S. treasuries, um, Australian 10-year bonds um, dipped below um, 2% this week, I think down to 1.85. They come back a bit. Um, uh, the yield is back up just under two, I think. What is going on? So there's this fear, obviously, which is and this uncertainty, which is driving the bond purchases. Um, and at the same time, you get this rally in stocks, which is typically associated with, um, you know, bullishness. So, uh, Warren, um, uh, what's your take? The short answer is QE, and that's it. And it's just the world is awash with liquidity. As we've just been discussing, nowhere in the world is it ending up in consumer prices like it did in the 1930s. Um, and the reason for that, I believe, is that we have a, a, a significant oversupply of manufacturing capacity, and therefore you can't get that liquidity into the real economy. So that, Q, that QE, that stimulus, is all about driving down long-term yields, purchase of long-term securities, and forcing investors out of government bonds into riskier asset classes. This has been the playbook for a long time now. Well, Japanese, it's been you know, almost 20 years. Um, that's why we're getting this, uh, this, this market behaviour. Now, the interesting thing, I think, about this behaviour, and we saw it with Brexit, is 
markets are easily spooked and then they recover within days and weeks and that's because there's so much money on the sidelines that they're all all that you know the professional investors the non-professional they're in there looking for the next shift um but then when risk is emerging it's i don't want to lose 20 percent of my capital everyone's you know displaying the disciplines of stop loss trading i'm out and it's creating major sort of ructions in markets but then as soon as everything settles down i'm back in it's the only explanation I can put forward. We don't, none of us know what the end game is, but it just doesn't feel right. Now, I don't want to sound like someone Austrian school economist who you know wants to stick to all the disciplines of of it all. But you know, we I think you know the Fed is is critical here. The Fed needs to go again. pull some of that liquidity out, test the markets. It's it's this idea of weaning the markets off the drug, so to speak. Um, you know, they've got to take the opportunity to, to test it out because. Um, the, the the damage that could come from a bubble, a genuine bubble forming that crashes, um, could be quite quite severe. Warren, I was just going to ask you a question in relation to the shape of the yield curve and what QE programs is doing, and what message that's sending to the private sector, to households, and to businesses about where the outlook for inflation and growth is going. How much do you think it's actually a result of what's actually occurred? Uh, being driven by fear about where the economy is going and that's why people are piling into bonds? Or is that just simply to do with the QE programs being implemented by the Fed, the Bank of Japan, ECB, etc.? Yeah, well, all, all of really long histories you see of yields tell you that um, long yields in um, the major markets are at you know, thing, levels we haven't seen for 200 years and you know, I dismiss any data before that, so you can almost say forever. However, the world economy has been plagued by periods of very low growth um, so that's telling you the yield levels dropped below where it should be because of QE. There's no doubt about it. Now, in a place like Australia where we don't have QE, and, of course, QE in any given country is just buying domestic bonds, so even though foreign central banks are big buyers of Australian government bonds, it's not part of a QE program, but it is being affected indirectly because of that process of pushing people into high-yielding securities. So there is definitely just a flow QE point to it. But at the same time, people talk about have been always talking about bomb bubbles like bu- bubbles like they talk about stock bubbles. But the reality is, the bond market, the sovereign bond market, is often a very accurate reflection of those expectations for growth and inflation. And that's investors saying, "I'll take three percent on an Australian government ten-year, because for me to go and invest in a bank or build a small business or whatever, adjusted for risk, I just can't beat that." So it has to reflect that as well. And so the global long-term yields, even adjusted for the QE effect, are telling us a real problem. You know, we've got this low-growth environment will persist. It's not a cyclical issue unless you measure the cycle in decades. This is going to last for a long time. And that sends a message, as you're hinting at, more to business. I don't think households really pick up on this, but to business, that um, you know, they need to revise down their expected returns. And here in Australia, the highest level, the most, you know, amazing example of this is the kind of return on equity the big banks are looking to seek. You know, they're, they're trying to get returns on equity of, you know, these days 13 to 15%, it was 15 to 18 And they were achieving it for a while, but, you know, there's a real question of can that be sustained and what damage does that do to either the banks or the economy that they're operating in when the underlying growth and the underlying returns are so much lower? So, look, there is a lot of information. I mean, I've been watching bond markets for 20, over 20 years and they are the most accurate um, of all the financial markets in predicting uh, the future. Not perfect, none of us are, nothing's perfect. Um, so there's a lot of information there. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, uh, 
equities are telling you a very different story to what the bond market is doing at the moment. Uh, equities, obviously, a lot of it's been forced by uh, people being shifted further out the risk curve by QE programs and the like and search for yield, search for return. But uh, the two stories being told by those two asset classes of our um, One's looking very optimistic at this point in time and one's looking very pessimistic. Um, hopefully it's going to end up being somewhere in between. That'll be an ideal outcome. Uh, but uh, and certainly the bonds, uh, bond market especially is, uh, is, is troubling me at the moment. So we'll try and finish on a lighter note as we always, uh, as we always do. Um, so I had, um, I had a baby earlier uh, this year, um, which means, so I mean, talking about holidays, I'm not taking one for the next 16 years. Um, no, you are. <laughs> they're just not the kind of holidays you, you like taking. <laughs> yeah. um, I was very lucky, though. Uh, we had a, a, a fantastic honeymoon when we got married a, a few years ago, safari on Africa and all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm still sort of uh, riding the wave from, from that. Uh, we normally try and get to the snow. Um, uh, over the winter, that's not happening with a three-month-old. Um, as, as much fun as it would be to put him in ski gear, um, but uh, we decided decided against it. So, um, probably my next my next trip home is going to um, going to be my next trip is going to be to to Ireland. I'd say, um, and Ireland, going to Ireland um, when you're an expat living out here, it's not a holiday, because um, there are you know 40, 40 aunts and uncles who want to see you, and bring you over for a cup of tea. And while it's nice to see everybody individually, the aggregate effect is yeah, really no, that, punishing. It sounds like you hire out a venue and get it all done in one go, and then, and then go and have some fun. Well, look, I was thinking of having a press conference about my next holiday because just like many golfers at the moment, you know, my, my Bali holidays now are filled, filled with, you know, playing with the kids, water bomb, you know, not the, not the honeymoons at the, you know, the, the, the rock bar or, you know, going down to Semiak for, for nice restaurants. So I found out that, you know, they've had a few cases of Zika virus. So my upcoming sort of September family holiday, I, I might just sort of, you know, say pull out and, you know, just like the golfers are doing with the Olympics and, you know, just leave the family holiday for, 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 for someone else. I'm just kidding. Um, it is fun to have holidays with, with kids. I think the, 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 the big thing is to get the mix right. So the reason... Uh, I love Bali is uh, is, uh, good babysitting. Well, first and foremost, I want to say that uh, I need a break. And I'm looking forward to having a break very soon. So uh, I think uh, I woke up this morning. uh, I've got a countdown clock on my uh, my Samsung Note. And it's uh, telling me that I've got 29 days. So I'm taking a week and a half off to go to Samoa. So I'm uh, looking forward to going and parking myself on a beach. And unlike you two gentlemen, I have no kids. So I will uh, be having an absolute ball there. Um, and then I'm lucky enough, uh, I'm a massive Formula One fan for people who don't know. Uh, I love going to Singapore to go watch the night race there each year, go with a big group of people, it gets bigger each year, uh, and go and cheer on uh, Dan the Man Ricardo. So uh, that'll be in September, and then I'll have used up all my annual leave, so uh, you'll hear a lot more of me in the, <laughs> after, after September this year. Um, and do you have, can you do us up a note on what's on the economic calendar for that time that you're, uh, that you're heading away? My economic calendar, no, I'm not going to be doing an economic calendar. I'll be on holidays. Uh, I'll send everyone a photo on my Twitter account. Uh, it'll be the picture of uh, me having a beer at, uh, at the beach at Samoa. And then uh, that will be the last you'll hear from me for the entire week. I'm not going to be on any technology whatsoever. That's it. Right, the market expectation will be for cocktails at six. Um, okay, you've been listening to the Devils in Detail podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. I've been here with David Scott. Fantastic, Jack, guys. Thank you. And uh, our guest has been uh, the fantastic Warren Hogan. Uh, Warren, thank you so much. Sort of really fascinating chat. Mm, thank you very much for having me in. It was uh, good fun. 
You can find us on the web at uh, businessinsider.com.au, on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. Uh, you can find us all individually on Twitter. I think Warren is at underscore Warren Hogan. Um, David is at David underscore Scott, and I'm at Colgo. Uh, and don't forget, you can find the show on iTunes where you can rate us, and we'd love it if you uh, leave, left us um, a review. Talk to you next week. This podcast was delivered by Australia Post. If you've ever received a branded package, you'll know it's a small detail that makes a big first impression. Now with Australia Post, you can design your own personalised packaging. For more info, go to auspost.com.au slash podcast. That's auspost.com.au slash podcast.